Hello and welcome again to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities, is here with me to review what's been going on this week. Let's start off with a quick word about the markets, which have been pretty weak this week, I think. It has been a tough week for the market. You're absolutely right. We saw four consecutive negative days, the first four days of the week. And it looks like the all share will finish down, uh, certainly down over 1% for the week. Uh, Investment companies have fared a a little bit better. Uh, They will probably finish up on the week, probably up about 1.5%. Clearly, um, there is demand for investment trusts out there. We've seen the sector average discount uh, hovering around the 5% level. And just to remind you, three weeks earlier, it uh, it widened out to about 8%. So definitely seeing some good demand coming through for investment trust. Okay, so that's good to hear. We've got a a few news items to go through, but let's kick off with uh, one that we mentioned last week where we weren't entirely sure what the situation was, but I think it's now clear. And that is about uh, Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust. Bailey Gifford very much the inform investment management house, you could say. Uh, And China also becoming quite an interesting subject for investors. So what's the, what's the news? Can you just clear up the issue we had last week about the ticker and the name change? That's right. So um, this was Witten Pacific uh, Investment Trust, uh, and we knew that Bailey Gifford had been appointed manager and shareholders approved that. So a week ago, we had a slightly unusual situation where the ticker had changed to BGCG, but the name uh, remained Witten Pacific Investment Trust. Clearly, just a, a little bit of housekeeping required there. Uh, because the name has now caught up with the ticker and the investment trust is duly renamed the Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust. So that's very good to know. And uh, just tell me, the China Trust, there's some competitors as well. Which sector are they listed? It's a good point. Uh, At the moment, there are two other investment trusts focused on China. So Fidelity China Special Situations and the JP Morgan China Growth and Income. Uh, And they find themselves in in the general kind of Asian equity bucket. But Given that there are now three investment trusts in this space, um, and they are all very much in demand, we've seen them all re-rated uh, in recent weeks. Two of them are trading on premiums. We certainly look at them as their own separate subsector, and it kind of feels as if the, if the industry is moving in the same direction. Yes, that would be because China is becoming such a large, significant part of not just Asia-Pacific, but the whole emerging markets uh category that it's probably only a matter of time before we start talking about China as a separate investment destination. That probably would be something that, uh, as you say, a lot of investors would actually welcome, given that uh, China is uh, such a prominent uh, feature of the world economy these days. And people would, I guess, rather invest there than necessarily some of the other emerging markets. There are a lot of uh, investment trusts currently in the emerging market and actually Asian space, uh, and a number of them have struggled, to be honest. Uh, trading out on 10% discounts and performance records, probably not the strongest. So could we see more of those type of investment trusts look to change their mandate in the way that Witten Pacific Investment Trust has done and uh, go down the China route? It's certainly a possibility, particularly, as I said, when clearly there is a demand for Chinese equities at the moment. And presumably that is being reflected also in the ratings of uh, the trusts that operate with this particular focus. So the, the Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust has been re-rated and largely on the news, obviously, of Bailey Gifford's appointment. Uh, they're now trading out on a 5% premium. The JP Morgan China Growth and Income, which has enjoyed a very strong performance run, that finds itself on a 2% premium, having averaged a 9% discount in the previous 12 months. And with Fidelity China Special Situations, again, not that long ago, they were buying back quite a substantial amount of shares and have averaged uh, 8 8.5% discount in the last 12 months. 
that's tightened, narrowed in now to about a 4% discount. So that's all good news for shareholders who, who perhaps early in the year when China was a little bit out of favour, decided to stick with those names. Uh, they would have enjoyed a, a good positive re-rating. Good. Okay, so we'll move on. I just want to mention in passing, uh, I hadn't realised that uh, Witten Pacific had such a long distinguished history. I mean, it dates back to 1907, I think it was, when it launched. So it's over 100 years old and uh, still going strong, albeit under new ownership. That's always interesting to look at some of these very old, if you like, uh, surviving warriors from the past. Another one with quite a long track record is Murray Income, which uh, we also heard some news this week. Uh, That's uh, M-U-T. And as we've discussed, they have been in conversation with, or they're about to take over the uh, running of Perpetual Income and Growth. Murray Income was launched in 1923. So it's coming up to its 100th anniversary in a couple of years' time. In any event, where are we on this particular deal? And uh, what's the uh, process from here? So we've had the prospectus and the circulars published in connection with this merger. The kind of probably key date is the uh, general meeting on the 9th of November. This uh, requires shareholder approval. And also Murray Income uh, has given some details in terms of its uh, dividends as well. Uh, What it's looking to do is to make sure that its current shareholders are not disadvantaged in terms of its dividend payments and the newly merged shareholders who are coming across from perpetual income and growth. They've been kind of notified when their dividends will, will kick in. So that's all kind of cleared up. And in fact, in addition to that, the shareholders in Perpetual Income and Growth have received a pre-liquidation special dividend. I think we've talked about this before. This is the distribution of its revenue reserve. Um, and that went ex-dividend this week. OK, so we've discussed, as you say, revenue reserves. This is money that to put aside, if you like, as a rainy day money that investment trusts can put aside if they have met their income distribution obligations to pay out 85% of their investment income to shareholders as a dividend. They can keep up to the remaining 15% with them. Okay, that's interesting. Let's see, uh, what's what's happening in the discounts of those two trusts as they move towards this uh, proposed combination? Uh, well, we've seen Murray Income uh, just tighten in a little bit, probably between a 4 and 5% discount. Um, perpetual income and growth, it's moved around a little bit, I think mainly because of this, the 13p, the, the special dividend that it's paid out. So we, we've seen a little bit of fluctuation in the share price as it's adjusted for that, effectively, that, that return of its NAV going back to shareholders. But again, as I think we discussed previously, you would expect the two discounts to, to narrow, particularly given that Aberdeen Standard Investors, who are the uh, responsible for Murray Income and, and Charles Luke, is now also responsible for the portfolio of perpetual income and growth. And that portfolio uh, is in the process of being realigned. I think there was something like 50, 56 stocks uh, in there that inherited. I think 11 are in common. Uh, and so there is a, a process of repositioning that portfolio. And that will all be done pre-merger. Uh, so that should be quite an efficient way uh, of doing it. But given that, you'd expect the, the two investment trusts to increasingly perform in, in exactly the same way. And then, as I said, when that merger happens, and that'll be a very efficient process. So there is just a question about the timing there. I mean, the general meeting is on the 9th of November and shareholders have to agree the proposed combination at that point. But are you saying, did you say that the portfolio is already being transitioned to that stage or are they just getting ready to do that? No, the portfolio. So the portfolio of Perpetual Income and Grove is actively being transitioned at the moment. Uh, and as I said, I think there's something like 56 holdings or they were at the end of July. And he is now looking to effectively turn that portfolio into a copy of Murray Income. There are a few legacy holdings, or there will be within perpetual income and growth. So I think 1% are in 
unquoted uh, holdings and they will not be transferred across. They will go into the hands of the, of the liquidator and as and when there's any profits from the realisation that will be paid out to shareholders. I'm just puzzled by the fact that it's rather sort of taking the shareholders for granted, isn't it, if they haven't yet actually formally approved the whole process to be to be moving the portfolio around? Well, that, that would be one viewpoint. Uh, another viewpoint would be that obviously it's within the gift of uh, investment trust directors to appoint the, the manager that they think uh, is going to do the, the best job for them. So to appoint Aberdeen Standard Investments to manage their portfolio is within the gift of the board. And, and you know, I think most people would see that as a positive step. Okay, so we'll move on from there. And then let's just talk about um, talking about shareholders' involvement in decisions about the future of investment trusts. Let's talk about what's a rather strange thing has happened this week at Premier Global Infrastructure. That's PGIT, uh, which has had a general meeting to amend its investment policy. But can you fill us in the story there and what, how the votes were cast in this particular uh, instance? Yeah, so Premier Global uh, Infrastructure, they, they announced a, a little while ago they were looking to move their investment policy on. Uh, previously, they were looking at investment companies in the energy and water sectors uh, and, to be fair, other generic infrastructure plays. But they, they said, no, they wanted to hone it. They wanted to focus on renewable energy, the renewable energy sector and sustainable infrastructure investments. In order to do that, they had to seek shareholder approval for an ordinary resolution uh, and to accompany that, they also wanted to change their name. Now, uh, bear in mind that Premier has uh, merged with Mighton. Part of the, the name change was a reflection of that, but also the, the change of uh, investment approach as well. So that was the background. They held this general meeting uh, about a week or so ago, and the ordinary resolution was passed, so they can change their investment policy to focus on renewable energy plays. So that's all positive. Um, but there was a substantial vote against... 42% of votes cast were against the uh, ordinary resolution. That same kind of block was voted against the name change, and that fell over on that basis because that was a special resolution which required 75% of votes cast to be in favour. So it, it can actually change what it's doing, but it can't change its name. So that's a bit of a curiosity, you'd have to say. It does seem paradoxical that you need a special resolution to change the name, but uh, only an ordinary resolution to change the policy, which uh, I guess some of us would argue is probably more more important than what the name is. In any event, the 42% who were against this uh, resolution, what would there have been their issue about this? I mean, it's, it's difficult to speculate. I mean, in the accompanying announcement, they made it clear that it was actually just one single large shareholder uh, and the board intend to consult with that shareholder. Um, it was a relatively low turnout on the vote. I think it's worth noting only 26% of the total share capital actually voted. Uh, and so this stake or certainly the, this share block that was voted against was 1.9 million shares. And that equates to just under 11% of the share capital. And I think that actually raises uh, quite an important point that this move obviously was contentious for one shareholder, but possibly not for too many of the other shareholders. But where we do have low turnouts, it doesn't take too much these days to actually see some strange uh, results arise. And I think that's particularly true for investment trusts that have high weightings uh, of shareholders on, on platforms, which those shareholders can find it more difficult to participate, find it a bit more difficult to vote. Uh, and so we are increasingly seeing some slightly odd uh, outcomes where there is a low turnover of some of these votes. There's an important point, I think, because we've made much of the fact that uh, there are more individual investors coming onto shareholder registers and that's a good thing we think because investment trusts do have many advantages 
but it does bring up this old hoary issue of if you own the shares it's really a good thing to try and vote if you can find out the information and of course one of the issues of the platforms is exactly how they communicate or pass on information about uh, investment trusts to their shareholders uh, and to what extent shareholders can actually exercise their votes without too much difficulty i think there has been some improvement on that score recently it's much easier now to do that than it was but do you have any any thoughts about that in general terms simon do you think that uh, there's more that the platforms could do. Obviously, it probably incurs them in more time and a bit more cost to make sure that everybody is fully informed about every announcement. And as we know, there are lots of announcements every week. What do you think? What are your thoughts on that, if any? No, I think you make a, a very important point. And I think it's something that, as an industry, the uh, investment trust sector is very aware of. And I know there's various uh, initiatives underway with bodies such as the Association of Investment Companies, and various other fund management groups to really work with the platforms to ensure that shareholder rights are not overlooked. Um, I think it's very important. Sometimes the business of voting can be quite mundane uh, and it's quite easy when you do get these forms perhaps in the post to throw them straight in the bin, but it, it really does matter. And, and with this growing number of retail shareholders now appearing on registers, I think it's very important that, that they're encouraged to participate uh, in the business of the company. Yes, I think that's an important point that uh, individual investors ought to think about at least, and maybe that includes one or two who are listening to this podcast. Let's move on and talk about IPOs, what's been happening in the uh, number of IPOs that have been going on, and also uh, placings as well. We're going to move on to that topic now. Let's start with an IPO, and let's start with one which um, I think I should disclose is a corporate client, or which Winterflood Securities is the corporate broker, I believe. And that is Triple Point Energy Efficiency Infrastructure, T-E-E-C. What's the story there, Simon? I'm sure you have a, a very good track on this one. Well, it's the third IPO of the year in the investment company sector. Uh, £100 million pounds, uh, was raised. And this is an investment company that's going to be focused on low carbon heat distribution, social housing retrofit, industrial energy efficiency and distributed generation. So it all sounds very, very now. I mean, basically, this is all part of uh, these investment companies that are very much focused on the drive to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by, by 2050. So it's a, very much an interesting vehicle. Triple Point have been very active in this space for some time. It's targeting a total return of between 7 and 8% per annum. And the yield, the, the dividend is a big part of the story. It's got a target dividend of 5.5p in its first full financial year. And then thereafter, it's looking for a progressive dividend policy. So as discussed before, uh, to get an IPO away is uh, no mean feat. The manager uh, subscribed for 500,000 shares. And, and it's good to see that all the non-executive directors also subscribe for shares as well. So that will start trading on the 19th of October. It might be worth just mentioning, Simon, if we can. Let's just quickly mention this fact. Tell me how your job changes when uh, your firm is involved in an IPO. How do you preserve uh, what we call the Chinese wall? And when are you involved in what way? And uh, how does that process work? It depends, I think, is the, is the short answer. Um, invariably, brokers on the research side might be asked to uh, produce pre-IPO research, which is a particular form of, of research. It's quite regulated. Uh, it can only go out to particular people. In this particular instance, actually, we weren't involved. There was another broker involved who did the heavy lifting on that front. But also, we're limited in terms of what we can say. It's that kind of thing. The, the IPOs, as I said, are quite heavily regulated. Um, from a research point of view. So after something's announced or begins trading, it, it becomes a lot easier to, to talk about them in more general terms. 
Yeah, I thought I'd just make that point because it's obvious that uh, some people might think that that uh, raises a potential conflict of interest. But actually, the way these things are regulated, basically, either you're out there able to say something or essentially you're, you're basically silenced while the money is being raised. Is, is that right? Apart from clients of the firm itself and the professional investors who you're able to speak to. Is that, is that a fair summary or am I over-glossing it? That's right. I mean, there are quite a few rules over this. So you can talk to clients um, in a kind of pre-IPO setting, but it all has to be documented quite carefully uh, and it's subject to scrutiny as well. So, you know, rightly so, it's seen that the analyst role in an IPO, it can vary considerably, frankly, but it's a very controlled part of the process. Splendid. That's good to know. And I read that the fund is expected to qualify for the London Stock Exchange's Green Economy Mark, which is uh, I hadn't heard of before, I have to be honest, but I dare say I can guess what it's about. But can you tell us uh, what that is and, and how widespread is that particular label sought after in the investment trust space? It's an interesting one, actually. It's just to explain what it is. So it's something that the London Stock Exchange are involved in. It's for companies and funds or investment companies that generate 50% or more of their total annual revenues from products and services that contribute to the global green economy. So obviously, this new launch qualifies. And in fact, this week as well, GCP Infrastructure have come out and said that they are no doubt delighted to receive the same green economy mark. And actually, if you look on the London Stock Exchange website, there are quite a few companies and investment companies that are on the list. It seems um, that a number of people have uh, applied and received this uh, kite mark. So, I mean, again, it plays to a theme that I think we've talked about before, the idea of responsible investing. And uh, you know, it's very something that's very much in focus at the moment. It certainly is. And I, I must say, I wouldn't be surprised to see more fundraising in this area. We had a placing this week uh, from another company in a similar sort of business. I don't know exactly how uh, close their, their business models are, but perhaps you could just tell us something about that. That's called SDCL Energy Efficiency Income. SEIT. That's right. Well, they, they were looking to raise £80 million uh, for replacing at 105p per share. And that was about a 4% premium to their NAV as at the end of March. That was actually oversubscribed. They announced uh, just at the end of the week that they had raised £105 million. And those proceeds, um, they're going to use it to uh, invest in pipeline opportunities. I think they're looking at an operational European regulated energy network in a major Western European city. So they'll deploy that uh, capital sooner rather than later. But this is a, this is a company that launched um, just under two years ago, uh, and they've already got assets of over 400 million. So this is, again, another good step up for them. This might be interesting because it might uh, relate to how the Triple Point Energy Efficiency Infrastructure Trust is going to trade. But uh, What's the rating on SDCL and uh, what's the dividend yield? I mean, this is obviously such an important part of the proposition that these companies are putting to investors. That's right. So they're, they're trading on a, on a premium rating uh, on about a five or six premium. So to be fair, their premium has been higher than that. But obviously with the placing, that premium has just come down a little bit. But the yield on a historic basis is just under 5%, probably about 4.8% at the moment. So again, a number of these uh, investment companies in this particular space, the renewable energy space, 5%, I would say, on, is probably the average, if not a little bit higher than that. So they're very much in that same kind of ballpark. And on top of that, you might expect to get an extra 1%, 2 or 3% in terms of capital return. Is that right? If you have a sort of 7 to 10 target uh, total return, 
And you mentioned that um, STCL have been going for a couple of years, but their share price is still pretty close to the issue price, right? So, I mean, it's up slightly over that period. So they've probably just about succeeded in that particular target uh, area. Would that be a fair summary? Yes, I think, look, yield is, is a very key part of this particular company. And to be fair, most of the companies in, in that space, I mean, some have seen increase in their, in their capital side, but that's, I would say, is a secondary part in the main uh, for this kind of asset class. And it's worth pointing out, if the capital value stays constant, this kind of yield is certainly significantly better than you would get from a government bond uh, of any duration. Uh, and of course, also from a cash, which you might have in the bank. So as long as they can maintain the value of their capital, the yield will always be a significant selling point. Let's move on then to a, another company which is intending to float. Uh, and this will be of interest to those of us who have a possibly obsessive interest in uh, Hypnosis, the uh, music royalty fund, uh, S song as it's known. But it's going to face some competition, or it might face some competition if this company manages to, uh, to get its shares into the market. So tell us what's going on there. So a company called Round Hill Music Royalty Fund uh, announced this week that it's of its intention to float. They're looking to uh, raise $375 million at their IPO. And Round Hill is a um, owner and operator of music copyright properties and, in fact, is the seventh largest music publishing company in the US. Uh, so they have a pipeline uh, set up of 40 catalogues, and that comprises over 120,000 songs and that includes works by the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Elvis Presley, and even Phil Collins. So quite a diverse, mature pipeline <laughs> of songs there. They're targeting a total return of between 9 and 11%, uh, and that includes a 4.5% dividend yield. So they have quite a bit of experience in this space, Roundhill. They've been going uh, 10 years, uh, and they make the point that in their three previous private funds, so not listed, but private funds, uh, they've uh, yielded uh, a 17% gross IRR, which is not a bad return at all. So we're still waiting for more details on this one. We haven't seen the prospectus yet. Um, so this was just a kind of early stage intention to float. Um, I think they're looking at mid-November, so we've probably got the best part of a month or so. But it's interesting, there's clearly been some press interest in this story. A chap called Josh Groose, I think I pronounced his name correctly, is the CEO of Roundhill. And in fact, he's a former Bear Stearns banker. Uh, so not necessarily in the music business, but clearly has built a strong business over the last 10 years. I suppose one ought to say that at first sight, having the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and Elvis Presley amongst your list is probably a step up from Barry Manilow, but others may take a different view about that. But of course, I suspect that's only a small part of their, <laughs> their catalogue. Uh, and then no doubt there will be a, uh, some competition to have uh, boasting rights in terms of the quality of your catalogue. If this is a battle to control the headlines in this uh, particular specialist field, our friends at Hypnosis have not been silent this week. They've also put out an announcement. Uh, it is normally a, a weekly occurrence, and I dare say they chose this one with some interest, but they have made another acquisition. Uh, perhaps you can tell us about that, and we can uh, perhaps measure their names against some of the ones we've just mentioned. So this week, Hypnosis Songs Fund uh, announced the acquisition of the catalogue of L.A. Reed, uh, who's a gentleman whose production work includes collaborations with Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson. Um, basically, Hypnosis has acquired 100% of his publishing interests and writer's share of income. And apparently the catalogue contains about 162 songs. So he's been quite involved in the, the record business for quite some time. He was the former CEO of uh, Arista Records and Epic Records as well. He was involved there. 
and he's actually been appointed to the advisory board of, of hypnosis. So he's obviously a well-connected individual. And uh, as an executive, he's apparently developed the careers of Mariah Carey, Kanye West, Jennifer Lopez, and even Rihanna. Okay, so that, that, that gets some boasting rights there. I think that's not a bad uh, set of names to throw into the pot. I'll give you that. And uh, let's see. Uh, we don't, of course, know the terms of these. And in fact, it's interesting to see that the uh, you know the competitor is is willing to talk about target returns and so on. We're still waiting to see exactly how well the catalogue that hypnosis has is going to perform over the medium longer term. So it'll be very interesting to see how that works out in the battle of the big names, uh, which seems to be developing here. Are you a fan of any of those particular artists, Simon? I have to ask you that. And how does that fit with your heavy metal uh, interests? I must be honest at this stage, I don't know if I've listened to too many tracks of those artists in, in recent times. Clearly, I'll have to address that uh, in the very short term. We have this terrible uh, generational gap between us, Simon, and uh, you know I don't think the things that we listen to overlap in any way at all. But uh, we're, I'm working on it, and I'm sure you'll be working on it too. We talked before about why hypnosis uh, rather strangely came out with another placing ahead of the fact that its previous C-share issue had still not merged into the main trust so do you think that was a bit of a preemptive strike does it look like that in retrospect it's easy to be slightly cynical about these things i'm sure the good people at hypnosis will will point to the fact they have a very strong pipeline and they've been very quick to deploy the capital that they've raised uh, to date but it would also equally be fair to say that stranger things have, have happened in the fundraising world that is sometimes a bit of a pattern that when a particular fund does face some competition and it's able to it will suddenly look to tap the market for additional money. But that's not to say there isn't space for two listed uh, music royalty funds uh, in the UK marketplace. It's clear an area that's attracted a huge amount of interest and hypnosis has done very well to date, uh, in, particularly in terms of raising new money. Yes, and that's a very good thing, as you say. I mean, it's also worth pointing out, I think, that uh, what this kind of reminds us is that while hypnosis is a novelty over here in the investment trust sector, uh, it's not the only company involved in the music royalty business by any means. That's a very large players, uh, many of them in the US, and it is competing against them to some extent. And if we can get some more of that, uh, those assets over here, I dare say that is a good thing. And a bit of competition never did anybody any harm. Let's hope that this one succeeds as well and performs as advertised. Uh, we'll just very briefly just pick up on another little issue uh, just to round it off. And this is the Gresham House Energy Storage uh, Grid is its uh, rather splendid ticker. They raised some money from a placing earlier on, but they've just uh, rounded that out a little bit. Is, is that right? So they raised uh, £15 million this week through a mixture of short-term and medium-term secured power bonds, and they are going to use the proceeds from that issuance to acquire an operating asset, uh, which are in the final stages of due diligence, um, and that's expected to uh, conclude in the next few months. So that's all kind of good news for them. They're building out their portfolio, the acquisitions expected to be accretive to cash flow and NAV. Um, in terms of the bonds themselves, they're at a fixed rate of 5%, but the intention is to refinance the short-term power bonds, uh, which are worth 7 million of that 15 within the next 12 months. Okay, well, it sounds a wonderful thing, a power bond. It would be nice to have a few power equities in your portfolio as well. But of course, that relates to what the issuer does rather than anything else. And I think if you're a wealthy uh, private investor, it's possible to invest in some of these power bonds. And if anyone who did do that when these power bonds that are being rolled over as well or refinanced uh, were issued would have made some money, I imagine, out of them. But uh, let's see. Let's move on quickly. Just wrapping up another little raising. And this is Urban Logistics REIT Shed, not grid, but shed. 
they've just said they've uh, filled out their recent uh, placing as well with a, a little bit of extra money from the retail sector. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, they raised uh, 0.6 million under their uh, retail open offer uh, and then an additional 2.5 million under their institutional offer. So back in September, they announced they'd raised 92 million. So this, this just uh, tops it out. Okay, one other little point here, Simon, which is I noticed that uh, this particular trust trades on AIM. Do a lot of uh, investment trusts trade on AIM? I mean, apart from VCTs and things like that, rather specialist things? Uh, the answer is no. Um, many years ago, probably back in the mid noughties we did see a kind of raft of investment companies being listed on AIM. Uh, they seem to be kind of pretty much focused on Bulgarian property or other kind of exotic uh, Eastern European property plays, uh, which were uh, in vogue at the time. But then uh, at the back end of the noughties, we saw the launch of the specialist funds market, which is now the specialist funds segment or SFS. Uh, and so, no, very few investment companies now find themselves on AIM. OK, good. So now let's move on to some results. And in particular, we're going to look at uh, there's a sort of theme in one or two companies, which is basically smaller company investment trusts, not all in the same country or region. But let's just start off with uh, Invesco Perpetual UK's smaller companies, IPU. We know that Invesco Perpetual's uh, been having some issues with its uh, very large equity income funds. But what's the story with uh, this particular trust, which is specialising in UK smaller companies, its name suggests? Invesco Perpetual UK smaller companies had its interim results out to the end of July. So that's the six month period. Understandably, a tough period for this particular investment trust. The NAV total return was down 23%, and that compares with a 21% fall for its benchmark. So it's underperformed slightly. Uh, but really, the story here was that its share price um, actually fell 36%. Uh, and that reflected the fact that its discount moved from, well, very small discount. It wasn't really trading around NAV uh, back at the end of January to a 15% uh, discount. Uh, and in fact, it's probably a little bit wider today, 17%. So uh, clearly a tough period. I think that derating has been particularly painful for shareholders. They changed their dividend policy uh, earlier this year, it was one of those uh, investment trust companies that pays an enhanced dividend. And they kind of changed the way they did that at one stage. But now they've, they've kind of moved that on again. Uh, and now what they're looking to do is to pay all available revenue out to shareholders through a dividend and then enhance those payments through the use of capital reserves. So they, they're looking for a total dividend of 15p at the moment, uh, which is about a 3.7% 3 yield on the current share price. So though, as we discussed in previous weeks, the use of what we call enhanced uh, dividends has helped to improve the rating of a number of uh, investment trusts. Obviously, this particular trust has had a problem with its rating. Obviously, the lack of demand out there or apparent lack of demand out there. So do you think this is a response to that? And are they hoping that the kind of magic of enhanced dividends, even if they come out of capital, will help to reverse that uh, particular trend in the discount? No, it's a good question. It's been a bit of a rocky road for this one. They, when they uh, adopted the enhanced dividend policy a number of years ago, it proved very successful and they were re-rated on the back of it. And that was accompanied by a good underlying performance. Um, and so the story was a good one, but they've really suffered this year. Um, I think it's fair to say that Jonathan Brown and Robin West have a good long-term track record, but it has been clearly more difficult market conditions for them this year. Uh, and the confusion, I think, that arose from uh, what was happening with the dividend back uh, in the first quarter of this year clearly didn't help the, the derating. All of the UK small cap companies, uh, investment trusts have been derated, but I think that their fall has just probably been a bit greater than some of the others. Well, we've actually heard from another one this week as well, and that is JP Morgan Smaller Companies Investment Trust. 
So how do their results compare? I mean, it is worth making the point that their benchmarks are different, so you can't actually make a straight comparison between the two. But, but what are the results that they've, uh, they've announced? So they announced annual results out to the end of July, but that's the 12-month period, obviously. A pretty decent set of results, all things considered. Their NEV total return was up uh, nearly 4% over that 12-month period, and that compares with a benchmark return uh, that was actually down 9%, and their share price return was also up uh, nearly 4%. So some good underlying uh, stock selection. Some of the, the, the companies I'm sure people are familiar with have done well over this period. Games Workshop, Dunelm, Softcat, and Computer Center uh, really worked very hard for them. So Georgina Britton and Kate M. Patel, um, I think, will be quite pleased with those set of results. And in fact, in terms of their rating, they're probably on about a, an 8, 8% discount at the moment. And that compares, well, that will certainly be narrower than, than the peer group average. Yes, I was looking through the list of in the UK uh, smaller companies sector, and it's a very big sector. There are lots of companies in there uh, in relative terms, and some very good trust in there, One of the, some very good ones indeed. Uh, but the range of discounts is quite surprising. I mean, it ranges from uh, sort of zero at the top down to the 30% discount at the bottom or something like that, at least based on uh, the AIC figures, which I think are based on NEVs rather than share price. But in any event, um, so that's quite a wide range. So there really is a, you know, a lot of choice in that sector. And I guess it's, a, it's one where you might be able to find some anomalies uh, given that wide uh, disparity in, in ratings. No, I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, as you rightly say, I mean, we've got BlackRock, Frogmorton Trust, which has performed very well, but finds itself on a, on a small premium at the moment. I mean, that's certainly one that's attracted some quite strong retail demand over the last few years on the back of that performance record. Uh, and then you can go out, oh gosh, I mean, there are some on, uh, you know, 20, nearly 30% discounts. You know, you certainly can find those. Though I'd always caution that there often is a little bit of a story why some of these investment trust companies find themselves on such wide discounts, and there may be any number of good reasons why they find themselves in that category. Of course, and that's uh, really the point I mentioned. That was just to make sure that people do a bit of homework. If you're, you shouldn't just take the headline numbers at first sight. You have to do a bit of homework to, to see what's what and what's underneath the bonnet in these cases. Okay, I've noticed that uh, JP Morgan Smaller Companies Investment Trust is having a continuation vote at its AGM in November. Any question that they might uh, they might not succeed in that uh, in continuation vote? I have no reason to believe that it should be any kind of an issue. I mean, particularly given the, the long term performance record. Um, what I would say in terms of continuation votes, they're quite common within the investment trust universe to see continuation votes. Uh, they may be on an annual basis, biannual, triennial, or even every five years. So the majority of investment trust companies will have a periodic continuation vote. And 80, 90 percent, perhaps even higher than that, will just not present any difficulties whatsoever. Yeah, and I think that's fair. I mean, the performance has been, uh, as you said, very good. Uh, the JP Morgan Trust, I mean, it's up more than, I think, 200 percent over 10 years and a decent performance over five years as well. So I would be surprised if indeed that was a that was a problem. Uh, but it's good to see continuation votes do at least have some incentive value. They help to keep boards and the management teams on their toes. We have seen some which have been have been lost, as we know. So um, that's interesting. Let's move on then to Fidelity Asian Values, which has also got a smaller company's bias, but it's not obviously based in the UK. Can you tell us what they have been reporting? So they also have their annual results out to the end of July. Their NAV total return was actually down 17% in that 12-month period, and that compares with a rise of 3% for their comparative index. Uh, so certainly a very tough period for this particular investment trust. 
And I think that reflects their bias to the value style. We've talked a number of times about how difficult it's been for value-orientated managers. Uh, and also the fact they do have a, quite a, a big bias to small and mid-cap companies. They're underweight technology and healthcare. And they've also had quite a high exposure to India, which be, has been a tough market within the Asian region. So very difficult period uh, for them. They're trading out on a uh, 10% discount at the moment. So not the widest discount in that Asia-Pacific smaller company space by any means, but uh, certainly wider than some of the more uh, specialist investment trust companies particularly those investing in China, as discussed earlier. Yes, I see in the Asia-Pacific smaller companies sector, there's three companies all roughly around the same size. And uh, as you say, with slightly different experiences in terms of discount and uh, share price performance, uh, as you would expect. So perhaps you could mention another one, one of them I think you've been talking to this week, which is uh, the Aberdeen Standard uh, Fund in this uh, particular sector. Uh, That's Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus. Uh, what can you tell us from your conversation with them, uh, Simon? Yeah, so we caught up with Hugh Young and uh, Gabriel Sachs of Aberdeen Standard Investments this week uh, to, to see where they are. It's always an interesting story when you talk to any manager who's investing in smaller companies in, in Asia. Hugh Young has been very involved. I think he's got a 25-year track record now in Asian equities. And with this particular vehicle, they're looking to invest in smaller mid-cap companies, those particularly with below a market cap of about $1.5 billion. Again, I think it's fair to say it has been a tougher time. Uh, Aberdeen Standard Investments has quite a quality value, a high value discipline, um, which means that they're not chasing some of the highly rated tech companies. So again, it's been difficult for them to, to make progress and, and year to date, their numbers uh, will be down. So they're underweight uh, things like healthcare and tech and, and overweight financials. But uh, ultimately, the story that comes across here is that there is value certainly in, in these smaller cap names but uh, I think investors probably have to display a little bit of patience. Just another quick point about Fidelity Asian Values. I noticed that uh, all three of these trusts that I mentioned were all listed in pretty much the same time. In 1995, two of them. In 1996, I think, Fidelity Asian Values. And there hasn't been anything launched in that area since. Do you think that was just it was a sort of flavour of the month uh, type thing at the time in the mid-1990s? Or is it just that there isn't enough uh, demand for this particular type of investment that has prevented newcomers uh, getting in on the act? No, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think the mid-90s, as you may well remember, was quite a boom time for uh, new investment trust launches for various reasons, not least the, the advent of uh, the PEP scheme at that time. I, I think the idea of investing in Asian smaller companies, personally, I, th- I believe it's still valid and still very attractive. And uh, again, back in the mid-90s, it would have been exceedingly so. Some of the uh, Asian markets were really going gangbusters at that point. There have been times when a number of these investment trusts in this space have done particularly well. I mean, Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies is the third of this band, and that certainly enjoyed uh, very strong periods of performance. I, I think it's fair to say, if you look at where the returns are coming from from Asian equities at the moment, it is from uh, predominantly being driven by China, and in particular some of the large cap names and, and the tech names uh, that we've touched on over preceding weeks. So it's not to say that Asian small cap will not come back into, into focus again. And, and again, when you talk about investment trust companies and the, the benefits of the listed close ending fund structure to kind of play an area like Asian small cap or any kind of small caps, I think it does make sense. I think there are any number of uh, investment trusts with, if not a predominantly mid and small cap focus that have a bias to names in that space. And again, for me personally, it's a good use of the structure. Excellent. Okay, so let's move on and uh, quickly say something about uh, an investment trust I know well, which we've discussed also, which is Jupiter UK Growth, JUKG. 
which uh, has released its annual results this week. So uh, Jupiter UK Growth announced its annual results to the end of uh, June, a very tough period. I think it's fair to say the NFE total return uh, was down nearly 28%, uh, and that compares with a, a fall of 13% for the FTSE All Share. And I think the chairman actually described it as unacceptably poor performance. Uh, the share price was down 31%. But none of this really comes as a big surprise. Um, as announced uh, not that many weeks ago, the board is considering options uh, with a liquidation and possible rollover option favoured. And there will be an update no later than this investment trust the AGM uh, in November. Yes, as listeners will know, I am a non-executive director of Jupiter UK Growth. And of course, I can only endorse the chairman's statement, which we all signed off on, that it was an unacceptably poor performance. In fact, the first half of the year was okay. We did better than uh, the benchmark, but the second half was absolutely, uh, I don't know, I can only use the word diabolical, I think. And all of it happened really during the period when the, the market sold off on news of the virus. We had announced the uh, that we were moving to a new investment manager in the first week of February, which was well before the... Uh, the full impact of the uh, of the pandemic that was about to hit the world was evident. And before that, uh, the new manager, Richard Buxton, could take over, which was effectively in uh, in May. The markets obviously took a real tumble and the portfolio of this trust was absolutely uh, unacceptably poor performance, as the chairman has noted. So that's what decided us that uh, despite our best intentions earlier on, we were going to uh, go for liquidation and rollover. And there will be more news in due course. It's sad. The timing perhaps was a little unfortunate as we changed the manager just before the market imploded under the impact of the virus. And uh, maybe things might have turned out differently in another set of circumstances. But that, of course, we'll never know. So that's the story with Jupiter UK growth. Finally, let's go back to a story that we have talked about one or two times. And uh, I'm afraid had a bit of a chuckle over from time to time. And it's not really a laughing matter, but... Um, as I said, I'm not a shareholder or a director of this company, and that is Gabelli Value Plus plus GVP. So there's been another development in this uh, on-running saga where the investment manager and the board of directors and the shareholder, majority of shareholders, are at loggerheads. So what's what's been the update this week, Simon? Uh, another letter has been written from a shareholder, this time from an uh, institutional shareholder called Metage. Uh, they've written to the actually to the fund's largest shareholder, Associated Capital Group. And as people may remember, this is the uh, shareholder that has links to the investment manager. The letter is regarding the vote by shareholders to discontinue the, the, the company. In the letter, uh, Mataj raised a number of questions uh, regarding uh, the potential litigation and how Associated Capital Group's current position aligns with Gabelli's corporate governance principles. I think Mataj made the point that if you go onto the Gabelli investors' website, there's talk of the Magna Carta as shareholders' rights, uh, one share, one vote, and how they always vote against the supermajority. And they were just trying to reconcile that rhetoric back to what's actually going on with uh, Gabelli Value Plus Plus. But uh, yes, I think Mataj made the observation that, you know, how can it be that they are looking to trap shareholders against their will? But they also thanked the board of Gabelli Value Plus Plus for their steadfastness in a difficult situation. Yes, it is a saga, and I guess it will eventually be resolved one way or another. But it's not clear, as we said last week, uh, what exactly the uh, investment manager here is trying to gain. The founder of the largest shareholder is uh, a gentleman called Mario Gabelli, who I actually met about 30 years ago, believe it or not. He had a big mop of white hair in those days, even then. 
and uh, he's uh, well known for his uh, his value investing style. But I'm not quite sure what his game is here. We'll have to wait and see. So that's all we have time for this week. It's been a pretty quiet week in terms of announcements uh, in comparison with some we've had. But uh, there's always a lot of interest in the investment trust world every week. And uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening again this week. We have received one or two questions from listeners. And if you go to the Moneymakers website, you can get in contact with us by filling out the contact form there. And if you want to send us a question, we will consider it. We can't guarantee to answer them all because we all have busy lives and we try to be helpful where we can. And uh, we'd like to hear from you if you have a uh, an interesting question you'd like to bring up, which uh, Simon and I can discuss. So thank you all for listening. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.